The divine whom we seek is not an abstraction of thought. And it turns into an abstraction when we try to approach him with the limited and limiting mind. The mind leads us to a point beyond which it fails. Before that vastness, that silence pregnant with infinite force, infinite power, infinite wisdom. To the mind he does appear as an abstraction or an impersonality. But to the heart's seeking and to the heart's innate intuition, he appears as the sole beloved who holds our hands and leads us, each one of us, through our own paths towards the great consummation. To the will he appears as a power, a master of all works. The cycles of evolution turn towards him. And all this which the mind conceives is nothing but a fragment of what the divine truly is, the sole reality of which all of us are figures and shadows and broken reflections and partial unities. There is a beautiful line in Savitri. All here that seems to be its lonely self are figures of the sole transcendent one. These things, these truths have great practical importance. Of course, we can turn them into abstraction by trying to analyze how is it one and how, you know, we see many appearances. But the immediate practical importance of this is that wherever we are in any circumstances, however much we may be surrounded with difficulties and darkness, however much the appearances of the world may contradict the sense of the divine within us, he is there. This itself is a great practical help to man. There is no particular muhurtam of his seeking, no auspicious time when we must sit for meditation. He is there, all that it needs is a seeking heart. If the seeking is there, he can reveal himself wherever we may be. Even in the most distressful and most disgusting of circumstances, a sudden hand is felt which pulls us out, carries us through all things. This of course is an experience which most of us I am sure may have had at some point or the other of the divine guidance. And it is there in life, in everything. It's not only given to a particular person, to a particular believer, even the non-believer, everybody. The divine does not abandon anyone. There is a very interesting little story. When a king asked, he was a tyrant king, an atheist, and he would take a lot of jibes at people uh, who believed in God. So he asked, what is it that, who is greater, myself or God? So it's a difficult question, and the child came up with a very beautiful answer. He said, King, you are greater, because he wanted to hear that. Oh, very good, I am greater. Can you tell this audience? They don't believe it. Though they won't tell me, but they don't believe it. The child said, it's very simple. There is something which you can do, which God can't do. 
Now the king is very happy, he's all puffed up. There's something which I can do, which God can't do. So what is it? He said, if you are angry, you can banish the person from your kingdom. God can't do it. His kingdom extends everywhere. Wherever the person goes, it's eventually his kingdom. Of course, some kingdoms are bright and luminous and wonderful as Shadhalu will reveal to us, I think, in the course of the lectures, Inner Worlds. Some kingdoms are full of grayness. Some kingdoms are dark and ugly, where God moves wearing a mask which to us appears terrible as Kali the destroyer, and yet it is his kingdom. That is what we need for the moment. It is an inner condition through which we meet God. He is everywhere, but as is the veil, so we see him. Normally, we are wearing this thick veil of matter and are conditioned by the material senses. So God also appears something obscure like matter. This is a very obscure stuff. And uh, though we love it very much, (laughs) every day we wash it, sure. But the problem is that all the soaps in the world cannot get rid of the obscurity. It only gets rid of some surface uh, muck which gathers again. But the very nature of matter is something obscure. There are in it very, very deep potentials and possibilities. And at each level of evolution, these possibilities have been revealed. To take a very simple example, when animal kingdom started moving in the material field, it turned this world of matter into a play field. If you really look at... uh, as with the advent of the material kingdom. It turned into a play field, a game of strife, a game of love, lions gambling in the sun, chasing a deer. It turned into a play field. With the advent of man, it turned into initially into concrete jungles, but something more beautiful, there was hidden in this grain of dust a possibility to communicate with the whole universe. Silicon Valley is not a myth, it's a reality of our times. And mind took up matter and turned it into a means of bridging, bridging other minds. So it was amazing that how the mind playing with matter has released another possibility. Animal creation revealed one kind of possibility, human mind revealed another kind of possibility. And there are yet greater possibilities which are hidden in matter. And that's what we were speaking of yesterday as the divine unfolding. With the advent of something greater than man, a greater consciousness, a greater being, what Sri has foreseen, what is in the process of becoming, what will inevitably be one day, this matter itself will change in the sense that there will be deeper possibilities revealed from within it. So that is the great unfolding which is taking place. The story of earth is not yet over. And who is writing this story is not man but the divine himself. And we are one of the chapters in the unfinished tales of creation. Whether this chapter will close with a finish and a marginal note that there existed once upon a time a species called man who ended up destroying himself 
like the dinosaurs with the asteroids or this chapter will move on to another with a luminous marginal note that man had the great privilege and fortune to collaborate in the great process of his own change. This is the great difference between man and animal which marks us out as the center of a great epic creation what Hasmuk Bhai just mentioned as the adventure of consciousness and joy. Man by his nature cannot be content with what he is because he has not yet found his normalcy. This is a psychiatrist speaking. Man is an abnormal seeking for his own normalcy. That's Shobindo's great word. We have not found our, like animal has found his basic stability with creation. Man is not found. He is never at ease, never at harmony, always seeking, always finding, always losing, always seeking something else. And this is the unique thing about man, the fire within him, which is the most secret of all things. A man who is content is either a dead man, psychologically, or he is sthit pragna. Man is marked by this discontent, by this seeking. And this seeking takes various forms, various shades. And as is his seeking, so as we saw yesterday, he conceives the image of the beyond. He also understands matter based on where he stands. At the level of a mind, we understand matter as nothing but a um, something driven by an unconscious play of forces in nature of a very mechanical kind. This is because the mind cannot go further. But if the mind could ascend to something still greater, it will see a different kind of a matter. It will see within matter a luminous presence which is molding, as Shubhinda puts it, the oblivious clay. But the only way to understand it, that's another issue that we took up yesterday, is not by staying where we are. It's only possible by an ascension. We can take a simple example. We know that when children are little babies, they understand their parent in a certain way. Parents are omnipotent, omniscience, the source of everything. Naturally, they see that the parents have given birth to them. They sustain, they supply, nurture, nourish. As the child grows up, he changes this conception. He begins to understand that there are things which my parents do not know. I was reading a famous um, um, story about the life of a scientist who did a lot of research into black holes. So he was saying that till the age of seven, my father was like a veritable encyclopedia. And when he would work in the workshop, this little child will keep on asking him questions and he would patiently reply them. Till one day, the child stumbled upon a very weird question because he just casually happened to read about it. He said, Dad, what's a black hole? Now suddenly the the father stopped. (laughs) And he had to say, look, we both have to figure it out. I really am not sure that I know what a black hole is. So the child describes it was for the first time a shock to my self-awareness that my dad doesn't know something. And we both have to figure it out. And he said it made it my life more fascinating because there was something which both of us had to do together. So there was a job for him. 
And of course, he went on to become a physicist who uh, did a lot of study on black holes. So as we grow up, this notion changes. We begin to understand that there are things which our dad cannot know and there are things he cannot do. Still, we don't understand. And during adolescence, how often do children say, my parents don't understand me at all? And they rebel and revolt. It seems it's a universal problem. Ask any adolescent and he will say, my parents don't understand me. Everybody seems to understand him. His friends, neighboring uncle and auntie, they understand very well because they don't have to face the music every day. (laughs) My parents don't understand me. And what is the parent's standard reply after a while? You will know when you grow up and have a child of your own. Great truth. None of us took it seriously. What do you mean? This is a very good, you know, it's a, almost a euphemism. You don't want to deal with me, so you are saying you will understand. But sure enough, when children grow up, past adolescence, they become adults, they have children, they understand by a kind of identity of experience what my parents meant, what they felt, how they felt, why they did what they did. It's a language which cannot be put, you know, books can be written on it. But no adolescent will ever understand what that book means till he becomes a parent himself. So something like that is happening with us. We are like an infant. We have our own ideas of God's omnipotence and omniscience. If God is there, why doesn't he just do everything set right immediately? He knows all things. Why should I need to pray? There was a famous study, God in the CCO. If God is there, why should I pray? Actually, the study, uh, you know, people found that prayer helps. So, as a criticism of the study, one of the arguments was that why do we need to pray at all? If God is there, why do we need to pray? He is omniscient. Prayer is a superfluous thing. He should not want us to pray or wait for us to pray. Obviously, it's a very ignorant, infantile conception of God. He is omniscient, omnipotent. He must play with us as marionettes. Like puppets. Well, God doesn't like that kind of play. I think anybody would get bored if one plays with puppets all the time. So he wants us to be an active participants in the whole thing. And that makes the play fascinating and delightfully dangerous or dangerously delightful. Because there is something which we need to do and we relate with him. His omnipotence is not the kind of omnipotence as we understand that he puts a magic wand and everything is set right. There are conditions in the earth play. And those conditions have also emerged in the process of evolution. And therefore, that pace, all those energies which have gone into the play have to be respected. They have to be worked through. It doesn't mean that if I have, um, let's say, blood pressure and uh, diabetes or XYZ, and I suddenly pray to God one day and, well... He should next day, the moment I get my blood sugar checked up, it should be normal. And if it is not normal, there is no God. Because isn't he supposed to be omnipotent? Or we have our ideas of omniscience. If he is there, he must be a veritable encyclopedia. All that is happening, he must be knowing in the minutest detail. Including, as Shurabindu puts, what Lloyd George had for breakfast this morning. He must know everything. So, these are 
as Shobindo reveals to us, very, very infantile conceptions. They are helpful at a stage of evolution. And when our needs are very small and simple, they serve a great purpose. But as we grow up, we discover the difficult conditions of the play. That this omnipotence and omniscience is there, but as a fundamental fact of the divine consciousness. In the sense that everything can be known. It's not that it's automatically known. Well, in some plane of consciousness, but in the conditions of the play. Similarly, this omnipotence means everything can be done. But it cannot be done just like a magic wand. There are conditions through which it organizes itself. There are steps of the process. There are forces to be negotiated. And there are sometimes even battles to be fought. Because the very things which have come into existence at a certain stage of evolution become a bar as we want to go beyond. This too we read yesterday when we traced the journey of love. At the level of the animal... Animal love is what an animal can manifest. He cannot manifest anything greater. A tiger can't say, I am looking for camaraderie so that I can discuss, chomp all Satre's existential wisdom, philosophy with my she-tigress. So, you know, it, it's absurd. It's not possible. Now, as the tiger graduates into human being, let's take the cycle of rebirth. That's what rebirth is about, an evolutionary progression. Then he looks for that. It's not enough to have a tiger kind of love, though that continues to exist. Now here comes the problem that to completely graduate into a human kind of love, the animal love very often becomes a bar. It's difficult to integrate the two because they are two different qualities of the same truth. And the same logic applies as we want to go beyond. If you really want to understand the divine love, the divine wisdom, how it operates, and we refuse to ascend, we continue to remain at the level of the mind and say, well, I want to understand everything within this frame. God must be having a logic exactly like my human logic. As we said yesterday, he won't be worth the trouble of finding him. Because then he would be just another human being who has only assumed super, super powers. God the Superman in the human sense of the word. But the way to understand truly his wisdom, his love, we have to ascend to another level of consciousness, another, a greater, a vaster, a truer way of being. And then we understand by kind of identity, just as a child understands the adult world only by becoming an adult. He cannot understand the adult world if he remains a child and refuses to grow up. His idea of adult world is only that past 18, I have certain freedom. And the way parents look at it, it's very horrifying. They keep telling, no, 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 that's only the legal definition of adulthood. You don't understand. Adulthood is not only about being 18 and going for a movie you want to go and, you know, going to a bar and drinking. In fact, they're horrified with the child's conception of adulthood as he is graduating from adolescence into adulthood. So this is the great challenge and the way to do it is the way of yoga. Yoga is the practice, uh, methodized practice which has emerged through centuries and millenniums through which human beings can ascend into that greater consciousness. It is the practical side of spirituality.
not yoga as we understand today. Today, yoga is just some set of exercises, physical, psychological, certain techniques. But yoga is none of these. Yoga is where seeking is. Where seeking is, yoga is already started. It is a seeking out of the limited mental, material consciousness. Whereas if that seeking is not there, whatever exercises we may do, we are still remaining the same old human beings. We may do any number of exercises, breathing, psychological, um, physical, but with a simple view that my physical existence must become better. My blood sugar must come down instantly. Well, that benefit will be there, but that's not yoga. It's simply, we remain within a frame. But if my seeking is for a greater consciousness, what is it? How does God experience this world? If there is a divine, how does he see? How does he work? What is that wisdom? How does he love? Then we are into yoga wherever we may be. And the mother gave one single criteria. She said, just carry this thirst wherever you go. It doesn't matter where you are. You may be just one of those youngsters who, is, who loves to drive a motorbike on, with high speed. And yet inside there may be a thirst and a seeking, you are on to the path of yoga. And if that seeking is not there, one may be in an ashrama packed with yogis and only living in a conception that I am, you know, some great, uh, my name is registered in the book of the elite. But one is very, very far even from being a decent human being. Because yoga is about a seeking. So this is the divine guidance in the world and for a long time it leads us unconsciously. We are not aware like a baby in the womb and a baby in the initial years is not aware what his parents are doing and thinking about him, what conditions they are creating, what his mom is preparing in the kitchen. And suddenly mom says, child you are hungry? Yes. And the mom starts feeding and the child doesn't know what labor has gone inside. So there is a whole stage of humanity which is unconscious about the divine presence and the way it is molding us, the way it is working. And obviously it is not yet ready for yoga. And it's no point talking about yoga to that. But there comes a stage when we begin to seek, we begin to understand, we begin to want something greater and higher and deeper than this limited frame of reference. And that is the beginning of yoga. And this is because there is a divine guidance in life leading us first unconsciously, then more and more consciously. Then it reaches a phase where we are fully and directly aware of the divine guidance in almost each and every detail. So it's a progressive becoming. This is the evolutionary journey. And yet this evolutionary journey passes through certain crucial and critical points in its evolutionary history and for the individual they are called as hour of God, God moments. Strangely these moments are sometimes some of the darkest moments of our life. There is a passage in Savitri, an absolute supernatural darkness falls on man sometimes when he draws near to God. An hour comes when fail all nature's means. There is a time when nothing works. And we are wondering where we are like as if stuck in a traffic jam. And nothing is moving and we have to reach out somewhere. We don't even know where we have to reach out. And we are losing everything. 
and that's when the mother says you must make a supreme act of faith and know that the grace will never fail us so in individual life there are moments when which are like god moments and there are moments when we leap across a chasm in our consciousness for a long time we were struggling with a problem and nothing was happening we were going here there to all kinds of meditation retreats and yoga centers and reading books nothing much was happening we were just the same old stupid monkey as we are and then one day out of the blues we were walking in manhattan and suddenly we meet a sight or we see an advertisement or to be more realistic and true to my own example of life walking in knot place aimlessly because there is a gap between the first train and the second one and unknown to you god is leading you this is the time this is the moment i must seize upon him catch him and show him who i am and this is a moment of revelation and apocalypse and the whole life changes it's amazing and this is true of individual life the same holds true for the collective life of mankind there is a long 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 preparation through which many things are happening and at the end nothing is happening the same war and change of empires and cry and anguish in the human heart but a time comes when all this anguish accumulates and suddenly someone appears and humanity is led across a big chasm on to the other side in the indian scriptures of the purana and it's also there in the parsi zoroastrianism it is very beautifully expressed that earth suddenly when it is full of anguish oppressed by the darkness it carries like a flame of aspiration it goes to the beyond and seeks its intervention and in response to the prayer of the earth an intervention takes place and this intervention is in the form of the divine assuming a human form this is the doctrine of avatarhood we are talking about the supreme mystery the divine descent in matter why is it a mystery well the gita one of the one of the oldest scriptures given to man describes three great mysteries it's very interesting normally with mystery we have certain association it says there are three great mysteries one mystery is that there is the divine in man and there is a path to find him it's a mystery because we don't know it nobody teaches us in the school in fact if we talk about it in the school we may be branded as a problem child if we talk about it to our parents they will think something has gone mad wrong and they will take us to a psychiatrist they may all believe in god but if you say that i want to become like god i want to find him oh i think you are reading too many good books very dangerous so this is a mystery and we we don't know it is something very very amazing very strange that this is the one thing which we should be taught and know right from childhood that look there is a possibility that you can get in touch with that vast luminous all beautiful consciousness it needs no intermediary to get in touch with it there is a path already there so the gita puts it as one of the mysteries the second mystery it says is 
the divine assuming the human shape, the divine descending and taking on a material body. It is a mystery because, well, first of all, to our cognitive experience, we don't even know that there is a divine. So to start with, it's a mystery. The second problem is that if there is a divine, he must be formless, impersonal. So how can the formless assume form? It looks like a contradiction to the mind. The divine is formless and this is a world of form and name. The divine is high above, God knows where. And we are down below. How can he enter into this little room? It's almost like the the uh, famous uh, impossibility that how can you make a camel pass through the eye of a needle? How do you do it? So one feels it's an impossibility. And yet, as the Bible puts it, it is easier to do this than to make human beings turn to God. So there is a, this is a mystery. How is it that the all-knowing, all-wise, that vastness, that infinity assumes a finite form and name? This again becomes a mystery because our conception of God is a very limited one. He is high up there and we pray to him and he acts from above. He cannot leave his home because he will get salit. He is the pure and the blissful one and we are the struggling one below. But if we take this conception of the divine that he is not only above, he is here within creation. Not only is he within creation, by his power of becoming, he has become all these things. Then the mystery becomes solvable. That all things in a certain sense, all form and name are in a certain sense his form and name. That's why uh, in olden times uh, in India there was a tendency to name their uh, all children with the name of God. Whether the child actually became a godlike being or a you know demonic being is a different matter. But at least the name was there as a reminder. Look, all names are eventually God's name. All, uh, whether uh, this way or that way, are some powers. Or aspects of God. This was the whole idea that everything eventually is God and He becomes the spirit of form and He becomes the form and name. But to the human mind, it appears like a mystery. How can He appear and act like an ignorant human being to start with? The third mystery that the Gita puts it, deriving from the second, is that when the divine assumes a form and name, that very act gives a very great uh, possibility for mankind if it can make the great act of surrender. It's an act of great courage. It can redeem itself of all sin and evil and error and grief. Sometimes this is forwarded as a kind of dogma, but there is a certain truth in it. The mother reveals this in one of her writings. She says, by the very act of the divine sacrifice in matter, he opens the door of a possibility, the possibility of redemption by the mere act of faith. It is not just a religious dogma, but there is a great truth in it. That simply something within us intuitively feels that the divine has assumed a human form and name to help us out. And this happens when humanity is passing through a crucial and critical phase. It, it is necessary for the divine to come in the forefront of the human quest. To put it in another words, 
there is within us the all wisdom, the all power. But it is acting through the play of forces and through circumstances. This guidance is there in life. It is there all the time. But from time to time, this all wisdom, this all power, this all love puts on the mystery of a human face. And this brings it suddenly closer to us. What is hidden deep inside us, which we can find through an inner path. That's why one of the mysteries is that there is an inner path. But this path gets blocked. It's not easy to go deep inside. Suddenly it assumes a form and face and name which is familiar with us. He comes very close within the mortal range. We read yesterday, his nature we must put on as he put ours. And one of the signs, he carries with him a sign. And what is that sign? The sign is recognized by a soul sign. And we can take it as a very simple example. Often people ask this question, how do you find your master? Now, you know, we keep giving all kinds of intellectual ideas. And the more the intellectual ideas, the greater the confusion that spreads among people. (laughs) I can assure this to you, that the more books we read, the more confused we become. Not knowing what is it that we must, is this right, is that right? But there is an inner sign which we forget to find because we have read too much and known too much. And there is a punchline in Savitri. By knowing too much, they missed the one thing to be known. Yet was their wisdom circled with a knot. By knowing too much, they missed the one thing to be known. When we meet, it is not that we are looking for a master. The master is looking for us. Not only looking for us, he is watching over us and preparing us. And when the time comes, he is face to face with us and suddenly a veil is torn and we recognize. This is an inner recognition. He is hidden inside, but he comes very, very close, right in front. And even there, there is a little veil. That veil is inside. And by his presence, suddenly that veil is torn and we recognize him as the master. There is a very nice, interesting story about Dilip Kumar Roy. He came to Shurabindra and asked for initiation. Shurabindra didn't say anything. He said, your seeking is very mental. You are not yet ready. Dilip Kumar Roy used to have a lot of intellectual questions and he would, uh, you know, he communicated with Albert Einstein, Bertrand Russell and uh, Mahatma Gandhi and all kinds of people. And when he came to Shirobindo, he said, your seeking is mental, you are not yet ready. So he was very disheartened. He said, oh, I am not yet ready. And, uh, and it must have given a jolt to his ego that, look, I mean, someone like me who has communicated with such great beings and Shirobindo has so summarily disposed me of, you are not yet ready. So he goes back and he is uh, about a couple of years pass and then he goes to take initiation from someone. So this person says, okay, I'll initiate you, sit quietly. And um, after that, in meditation, then I'll initiate you. So he says, I don't know how to sit quietly because mind is very active. He says, you don't worry, I'll make you quiet. Sit in front. That's the power and presence of a great master. So he sits and slowly he becomes more and more quiet. The masters act by silent spiritual influence. Suddenly, this master tells him, come on, come on, get up, you are already initiated. He said, what? Why did you come to me? You are already initiated. He said, but who has initiated me? He said, who has but Shirobindo? He said, but uh, I went to him, he said, my seeking is very mental. (laughs) 
Ah, he says, oh, that's his way. He's preparing you. But you are already initiated. He says, how do you know? I have not told you anything about this meeting. He says, Shurabindu came and told me. <laughs> so he is all confused that on one side to me, he is saying that you are seeking is very metal. On the other side, when somebody else is trying to take me, he says, hold on. <laughs> He's my baby. I am already taking him up and I am preparing him for the great uh, revelation. So this assumption of the divine, taking a human form and shape, a doctrine which nowadays often finds few takers, especially because the modern intellectual mind is too much conditioned into, to start with, its own arrogance. If God there is, he can be nothing greater than my own rational understanding. Or else, it's too much entrenched in its own ignorance. So it's not even willing to look up into an, you know, possibility. And besides a very strong streak of individuality in our nature, finds it very difficult to say that, you know, we have to surrender. Surrender to somebody who looks like us, two eyes, one nose, two ears. Maybe, you know, he may be a great intellectual. But why do I have to surrender? I can also become like him. I also have the same brain. But that's where we make an error of judgment. And that's where Shravinda brings in this unique, in fact, uh, though it's not much emphasized, and I'm glad this subject is kept. Avtarhood is one of the central conceptions of Shravinda's teachings. One which is almost like one of the fundamentals of this yoga. If the divine doesn't become human, if it doesn't take a human shape, it would be so difficult, the process would be so slow. In fact, a sage as great as Sri Ramakrishna speaks of two kinds of uplifted humanity. One who is a Jeevakoti. Jeevakoti are mortals who by their tapasya, by their sadhana, by their yoga, become enlightened. So these are the saints and sages and every age there has been no, it is said that there has been no cycle of humanity, no century or millennium, not even a decade when there has not been one such person, in fact usually there are more than one, present upon earth in a human form. Because they hold the fire even when there is darkness all around. Yet there are few points of light which keep that fire and nurture it for earth's sake. These are the saints, sages, the luminous seers. And but they are the Jeev Koti. They have ascended out of a humanity. They take their station and at there they hold that fire. When the darkness is out, once again the light will be released into play. For the moment they hold that fire and few, some section of humanity feels attracted and gathers around them. Thus we have the great ashramas come into existence, the great schools of yoga, because of these seers and sages who hold the light. But there is another type of divine becoming, and that is the Ishwara Koti. The Ishwara Koti is one who descends into the play and comes out as at will. It's like one who can ascend and descend the ladder at will. Now what the Ishwara Koti does, while the Jeev Koti ascends and stays there, if we read the doctrine of saints and sages and seers, we will read that they never come below the mind. 
they know that below the mind is muck and they don't want to come into the muck they stay here and they say you can come and I can help you from there I can lend a little hand and pull you out but you have to make an effort come up to this point then I'll put a hand and take you out so this is the action of the saints and the sages great action this is not to say something ordinary just to ascend a little beyond the mind is a very very difficult task and then to even put a hand inside is to an extent sully yourself and to pull out it's a great great effort and it and people run the risk that's why sometimes the saints and sages can suffer a fall history of uh, yoga is full of yogis not full of yogis thankfully but well there are always yogis great yogis who ascended out of the limiting breaths of the mind but the moment they reached out to help there was a risk and sometimes they fell fell precipitously and often when they fell fall they get lot of media attention because well here is the person look at but actually it is part of that adventure it's a real adventure it's not easy to maintain that status if we put our hand down so among the masters we see two type one who withdraw from the world into a kind of seclusion they don't even put a hand they just say that i have given a path you follow the path they are not going to help us they give us a path and man must follow that path and if he follows that path he will step out of a certain frame they have given a path and the path again has an inner side and an outer side man because he is too externalized he takes up only the outer and unfortunately leaves the inner and there is a very nice story about it that when a guru instructed a disciple halfway through and he used to teach the disciple how to meditate and the disciple would observe the guru meditates and the guru had a cat he would tie the cat to a little pillar to a tree and he would sit in meditation and he would also give some milk to the cat to drink because you know the cat should be occupied with its own business while the master is meditating inside so when the master said i am going for a for some time to the himalayas so you just uh, i'll come back but you keep practicing whatever i have taught you now this disciple had no clue about what the guru does when he sits inside whenever the guru tried to teach him he said oh that is difficult it's too much of an abstract thing you are saying but he did observe that he ties a cat to the tree and puts a little milk in front of the cat so he said this is good this is simple this is easy this is it so he started you know doing that every day religiously he would tie a cat to the tree put some milk before the cat over a period of time people gathered because of this peculiar practice which he started doing at odd times of the day because the master had also instructed seek me all the time so he said seek me all the time means every time the cat should be fed it got overfed once one cat would die he would bring another <laughs> the guru was so the master the disciple was so accurate in his observation that he also noticed that the master was using a special breed of cat and had a special color so he would take the pains of getting that color cat and that breed and feed the special type of milk over years this turned into a new cult with lot of people from all around because this is the easier part to do <laughs> so till one day the master came and when he returned he found there was a cat festival going on in that city so he asked what is it he said it's a cat festival what is it it's the day of sacred day when many of us achieve enlightenment and the great grand master 
The master of a master achieved enlightenment through this way. He said, master of a master, I am the one, but I don't know about this. So he is curious. He goes into a great sabha and says, what is it, that new kind of yoga which I have not known? And then he sees the whole drama and he has to step in and say, you fool, you saw the outer and missed out the inner. So this is how we have great revelations brought down by saints and sages and prophets within the human range. But man, the fool that he is, he picks up the outer and throws away the most important part and we have a religion and cult in the making. Cults and religions are made when we focus on the external, whereas a path is focusing on the inner. But this is not enough to redeem humanity. Not everybody can reach even that point where one can follow the inner path. So, the chunk of humanity begins to, over a period of time, be more and more oppressed by greater and greater darkness. Few are shown a path and they ascend. Majority turn it into a religion. The vast majority is not even able to comprehend it. So over a period of time, a gulf begins to appear between a few seekers of light and the mass of humanity, where because it is left to its own resources, apparently, though there is a leading it through a complex play of forces, so it begins to gather more and more darkness, more and more obscurity. And it is the hour of crisis, the hour of intense darkness. And in that hour, we see the coming of the divine advent. And what this advent does, it's, it's described like that, in the great hour of crisis and darkness, when it's not enough just to have some saints and sages and prophets and luminaries of vibhutis, the divine himself must step into the forefront and take up in his reins the human play. And he can do it only because instead of asking human beings to ascend, he enters deep into the heart of darkness, down, 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 down below, like a sacrificial flame and starts cleansing it right from within, right at all levels. He goes there and does the cleaning part. We can take another image that we have two rooms. It's an oversimplified image. One where there is darkness, the other there is light. One where there is dirt, the other which is very clean. And there is someone who out of this dark and dirty room finds a way out. And then he stretches a hand and says time to time, come, I'll pull you out. And slowly this field becomes more and more dark, more and more dusty and dirty because the best ones have chosen to exit. But the other example is that the divine enters into this room of darkness and obscurity, into this dirt and starts cleaning it all over again. This is the work of the great avatar. I was reminded of the story that uh, Narad Bhai was telling that how he went to a place in India where Shurabindu had come and he had given talks and he used to hold debates and how that place was so dirty, so dirty. So, uh, the first thing that Narad uh, thought of doing, let's clean this place rather than give a talk here. And along with him, slowly, you know, the administration was embarrassed and then people came and they started cleaning it up. Something like that happens in our inner and outer life 
that that all wisdom assumes a human form to to lead the play to in, he steps into the darkness to transform it into light quite naturally there are two sides of this action one side is where the darkness which is oppressing the light which is holding back the resistances which are not letting the soul of man ascend further have to be tackled have to be removed have to be sometimes even broken it's like the great battle that's why every divine advent has around it a struggle a battle whether we see the life of christ of krishna of rama of buddha we see a kind of conflict and a struggle between forces that deny the light which are holding the human being captive within its own uh, little littleness and on the other side to open the path towards a greater becoming so he comes not just for individuals of course individuals also benefit as a result but his is a cosmic action at one place shurbindo says even if there was nobody who would understand what i am doing even if nobody was willing to believe or follow this even if i saw everything contradicting the possibility yet i would go ahead and do it at another place he says it does not matter an avatar can stay in a single room and yet work out everything even if nobody recognizes him and that is so true even of shurbindo's life and we look at his own life in the whole evolutionary progression where if you look at the previous century where does the coming of shurbindo and the mother stand we see a century which is full of on one side a crass kind of materialism where everything is nothing but not even a veil but matter and matter alone freud has declared that man is an animal who is imitating or trying to be god there is no god but only animal throwing his own shadow up above and giving it a luminous figure on the other side though darwin comes with the theory of evolution yet evolution is a play of chance and accident a material process there is nothing greater in it nothing deeper in it so at all levels physics has declared that all that god needed to do was to release one hydrogen atom that's how at least when i was small you know i was told all that god needed to do was to release one uh, helium or hydrogen atom and the rest can be explained all the rest so god had to rest after that 6 days he did this and the 7th day he said now the world will go on autopilot and what a mess it will be that of course he must have known so that is the kind of age even if we look at the cosmic scene the larger scene of the world there are great empires there is oppression there is superstition there is uh, slavery of every kind all over the world as if the world is not able to breathe a purer and freer light there were saints and sages in the east in the west in the north in the south there were saints and sages who were telling human beings basically that in this age of stress and suffering lean on god to be liberated to be free you have to go through this whether it is karma or whether it is maya whether it is a satan who has created this world or your own karma which is responsible but go through this passage of suffering during that phase we see the one light being born in two bodies 
we have that age the age of shirbindo also is the age of two great wars we were talking about the war and the conflict not only they were tackling the inner conflict the inner darkness and that is why we see shirbindo step by step he is replying to the materialist he is replying to the freudian world frame he is replying to the darwinian evolutionary scheme to everything he is giving a new divine sense and purpose they are not just letters written to illumine the mind it is a concrete action wherein new idea forces are released into this world new idea forces which will govern the coming centuries to the cross materialist to the positivist he is telling yes yes matter is real it is brahman one knows it but also see what it is in its truth it is the divine putting on the mask of matter and modifying it evolving it carrying it on its journey to darwinian biologist he would say yes of course evolution is true but evolution is not a play of chance accident evolution is the divine wearing forms and shapes so that through the process of evolution he can build up the ideal form the ideal shape through which all the glories and divinities can manifest through earth and stuff made of earthly tissue and matter to freud he would say yes yes i know what you mean man has one leg in animality probably two legs but animality is nothing but a shadow of the divinity above and that's why he is attracted to divinity and that's why he is a candidate for divinity and that's why his future is to become divine so he was releasing these idea forces someone asked shirbindo i think it was dilip kumar roy do you think that the world can be transformed by writing letters shirbindo says no who would be as foolish as believing that the world can be transformed by writing letters yet if there was no purpose in it it would not be done there is a work that this this also does and that work is it releases great currents and streams of ideas which in coming years will be picked up already we see many of the ideas that shirbindo released in the earth they are picked up by the human mind and they are being further turned into greater forms of understanding very many many times people don't know they don't acknowledge it's perfectly fine as long as the idea is taking shape in every sphere in the sphere of hardcore physics in the sphere of biology in the sphere of psychology these ideas are having their work so there is on one side an inner action where obscurity is um, removed and light is established the second action of the divine descent is that sometimes this inner obscurity this inner darkness also has its human representatives and that also has to be tackled and negotiated so we have just as in the age of krishna we have kansa in the age of shirobindo we had hitler and stalin and beings like that and there are many many mini hitlers and mini stalins also who are also there and they have to be also negotiated it's the divine avatar is not like a little saint who is just telling everybody just remain quiet be peaceful pacifist sit in a cave and meditate his is a divine action and he expects humanity to flow with that divine action it's a very very powerful action and even this action has even if however small a very very external side so there is the removal of obscurity and darkness there is once again the establishment of light 
and the third more important task is that he opens the path to the future he gives to the earth a dharma a new way which is more appropriate to the age and to the future which he has opened up so he comes as an upholder of the time spirit the the new dharma that has to be given to earth this dharma is not religion obviously it's a very great mis uh, translation of a great term but to give that to which human beings can hold on the eternal truth expresses itself differently in each age that's why the word is yuge yuge and though it is eternal yet it manifests in a certain way which is more appropriate to the human leading of that age we can take an example parents and the child is the easiest example one can fall back to if you don't understand anything of the divine just observe the relation between parent and child child is the soul and parents are the leaders so it will be very easy to understand a lot about it so when a child is 0 to 5 years parents have to treat the child as you know whatever he may do it is said you don't uh, be harsh don't be strict just take it that you know children are growing up they are going through a growing up phase so no scolding no hitting none of these things because they are still experimenting and learning so the dharma of that age if you may put it is one kind 5 to 15 the parent assume the role of a teacher they are actively guiding more involved in Uh, leading the child towards that adulthood past 15 the divine becomes friend the the parent become friend you have to become like a friend if you start after 15 telling a child that look thou must do this thou must not do this so in the child's mind it automatically gets translated into thou must not do is thou must do and thou must do means thou must not do it's an automatic it's like a you know we have those interpreters inside so the child's language interpretation works like that parents are saying don't do it must be something worth doing it must be something very pleasurable <laughs> because parents are the spoil sport so if you tell this then it's not the dharma of the age take him into confidence like a friend yes boy what did you watch today oh that movie oh great what did you see talk to him and you know slowly the child will begin to confide his own world then when he has become friendly then time to time in between give him a small little advice no but you know don't you think it can be seen in this way yeah so the child will say yeah i guess you are right daddy so that's how but if you say what you saw that movie how horrible of you so the child will ask your my grandparent told me that you also used to see such movies when you were you know 18 <laughs> so that's why there are grandparents to always you know bust the bubble don't you know what you did shall i tell the child so to each age there is a dharma the same divine who in a certain age appears like a stern tyrant who is sitting up there punishing and rewarding this is the most crudest relation that human beings have with the divine the relation of fear it's the most uh, least kind of relation at one place uh, shubhendra says that well um, in fact shri ramakrishna puts it very powerfully he says we don't want god fearing people there are plenty of that we want god lovers it's not that we don't want god fearing people so we want god haters and god bashers he doesn't say that <laughs> that's the way people human mind derives but we want god lovers it's not enough to it's not good to fear him 
Because fear brings a lot of distance and separation. It's important to love him, to play with him. There's a story of Sri called a Swapna. And in a way, this story is very interesting because it gives, he releases a new kind of energy through all his writings. Actually, if you look at Sri writings, it is a new kind of consciousness, a new energy that he releases. Now, in that story, there is a man who is very poor and he is thinking, why am I made so poor? If God appears before me, I'll tie his hands and give him a nice beating. So as he is thinking and wondering that in front of me there is such a man with such a good mansion with Mercedes Benz whereas I have only a Zen Maruti. Well that's the modern version. In the ancient version he has nothing. But you know in modern sense of poverty is that even a poor man has you know uh, a car. The rich man has BMW. That is the difference. So he says uh, I would give him a beating. Suddenly God appears like a child and says you call me. He says, who are you? He says, I am God. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My, I mean, he is, you know, he is uh, stammering. He says, well, here are my hands. Tie my hands. Give me a beating. He says, no, no, I didn't mean it that way. I think you took it seriously. He says, no, 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 I didn't take it seriously. I enjoy it. You know, I like people playing with me. But everybody makes me very serious, puts me on a pedestal and lies flat before me. I want to play. I love when people play. So he comes to play. This is a new kind of relationship. We can play with the divine. We can hold his hand. Allow him to hold our hand. The whole Shravinda is revolutionized the whole understanding of yoga. Yoga is no more a fixed system of techniques and processes. If we are still doing it, we are conforming to the old world. Yoga is living, real, all the time engagement. When Udar asked mother, Mother, 20 years I have been doing yoga. What do you have to give, say, by way of my report card? So mother said, well, uh, okay, you are doing, you know, you could have done better. That's mother's way of saying, she didn't say I give you 20 out of 100. So he sensed that something is amiss. So he asked mother, mother, uh, what, what is it? I mean, did I miss out something? He said, yes, you could have done it better. He said, Mother, can you tell me so that now I can improve and change? So Mother asked him, what do you do in the morning? He says, well, I get up, rub my eyes and... No, what next? Well, I rush to the bathroom. What do you do next? Now he is getting a little embarrassed. He says, Mother, I pick up my toothbrush and put paste over it. And then I start, uh, what do you do? Brushing my teeth. So Mother said, how do you brush your teeth? Now you know, Udhar is feeling more embarrassed. Now mother has to teach him dentistry. So he makes certain motions. He says, all wrong. Mother, what should I do? You know when you wake up in the morning, you should wake up and as if you are waking up with me, relate with me. When you go into the bathroom, when you are brushing your teeth, you take it that I am with you. You are not brushing it alone. When you are getting ready, putting on your best attire, now I am like taking on from there and moving on to its logical you know, consequences. When we put on our best attire, we are not putting on to impress everybody that look, I look great. Well, I am doing it for the sake of the divine. He is with me. How do I look in front of the Lord? We can ask him. Do I look good? Nothing wrong with that. That's another kind of yoga. And maybe he will tell us, no, no, not this one. This color is not going well. 
he can change us to that extent that he can bring into our silly head some color sense. Actually, even into our, you know, there are people who, how they changed, I mean, I can easily share. Like any other youngster living in hostels, you know, what happens, you don't take care of your room and of course not that shabby that shoes are thrown somewhere, but well, your clothes are not always folded and you just tend to put them on the bed. Men are like that, well. Let me be more specific and I'm sure many will agree. Strangely, when I first turned towards Mother and Shubhindo, spontaneously the first thing came to me without anyone teaching me. In fact, my parents tried to tell me it never entered, you know. Suddenly, I started keeping things in order and it took me a while to understand that it was an inner action. It was spontaneous. The mother not, did not teach me how to do it. She made me do it. And that's the beauty of this kind of a relationship. So when the divine takes on a human form, he gives a dharma which is appropriate to the age. Even in the most material things, he, they have revealed the presence of the divine. Everything from the smallest to the highest. Nothing is to be done with a sense of casualness, with a sense of frivolity, with a sense of this is just, I am doing it for my own sake. It doesn't matter. Everything matters at one level. At another level, nothing matters. Because this is also a dharma she has given that men take sometimes life too, too seriously. We think we are responsible for this whole world. Well, there is a greater wisdom taking care of it. And we must know that it has taken, whenever there is a necessity, whenever there is a fading of dharma, whenever there is a decline in light, he takes on a human form, a human name. And because he is there, there is hope and light for the world. We will stop with just a small little passage, just five minutes. Though I will not be explaining this one because we have already have the background. So we'll just read it from the essays on the Gita. What is the work of the avatar? Shobindo culminates it with this passage, which is very powerful. That avatar comes for the outer and the inner struggle, and what we can do from our side. So it's a take-home point. Okay, avatars come, avatar do this, and Shobindo and the mother came during a dark period of humanity, and they opened the way and. You know, Hitler and Stalin's are gone. Now miniatures will also change. All that is fine. But what am I supposed to do? The inner fruit of the avatar's coming. So avatar come. He does. He is not like a saint and says standing up there. He comes and touches base with matter, and he does the work here, and he remains as a permanent influence upon earth. So avatars are not who come and go away. There is no date of departure. They become a part and parcel of the earth consciousness but who gains from it the inner fruit of the avatars coming is gained by those who learn from it the true nature of the divine birth and the divine works and who growing full of him in their consciousness and taking refuge in him with their whole being purified by the realizing force of their knowledge and delivered from the lower nature, attained to the divine being and divine nature, Madhbhavam. So he opens this possibility. And yet, there is something which is needed to be done from our side, that sense of surrender, being full of him in our consciousness, not resisting and revolting, but opening ourselves and giving ourselves. 
the avatar comes to reveal the divine nature in man by his very life he is an example what really is divine nature if we read through the stories of shurbind and the mother if we really uh, begin to recount and story of all the other avatars who have come stories of buddha stories of christ stories of krishna we are filled with a sense of wonder and marvel the mother says in in one of her aphorisms much later he says many people say these are legends and myths and she says thanks to these myths and legends they are much more truer than all the historical facts and datas mother tells it because history cannot record these things and yet they are so real and intimate in india they have been preserved by a tradition of folk tales actually they are there in every religion and they reveal what is the divine nature how the divine works how he acts what is meant by divine love what is meant by divine patience shobindo replying nights after nights keeping awake whole night sometimes till 5 or 6 in the morning replying to the same stupid queries of his disciples to the same disciple again and again and again from this angle that angle this angle that angle and yet giving hope whereas we if anybody asks us twice the same question shut up you are a fool i don't respond to these kind of queries so this is the way we are and look at the divine nature the divine nature of love when the story of course some of us are aware mother was cleaning the balcony and someone came and said mother oh i'll do it for you she said this is nothing my child the muck that i have to clean in human consciousness all the time is enormous so that is the kind of love that is the kind of action that they come to release and by their own life they set a standard an example for us to follow and that's what shrivinder reveals to us he comes to reveal the divine nature in man not intellectually but by example above this lower nature and to show what are the divine works free unegoistic disinterested impersonal universal full of the divine light the divine power and the divine love free unegoistic disinterested if one really makes a summary of shirobindo's action right during the india's freedom struggle and subsequently these few lines summarize it for paucity of time we are not going into it but if there is a whole you know sometime we can just talk about shirobindo and the mother's life and some of the incidents he comes as the divine personality which shall fill the consciousness of the human being and replace the limited egoistic personality so that it shall be liberated out of ego into infinity and universality out of birth into immortality divine waits for a thousand years to become like man so that man can become like divine man when divine takes a human form after thousand years immediately turns divine into a human being because that's the most convenient thing for him to do so this is the irony he comes as the divine power and love which calls men to itself so that they may take refuge in that and no longer in the insufficiency of their human wills and the strife of their human fear wrath and passion and liberated from all this unquiet and suffering may live in the calm and bliss of the divine
So he comes to help us. And when the divine speaks of surrender, it's not because he says, oh, you better surrender to me because I am great. Not at all. He doesn't care. It has to be the free self-giving of our heart. And if we do it, it is because it will help us move many, many steps further. Even in an ordinary field like uh, studying physics or any scientific subject which is purely uh, rational, intellectual and all of us are endowed with that capacity. Well, most of us. Even there, how much great benefit is there is someone who can hold our hand and show us the way. Teach us how to do this, how to do that. In the paths of the divine, where we have no clue because we are dealing with a consciousness, with a domain of which we have no idea in our everyday sensory life or life of sensory experience. So he tells us, well, what is surrender? Surrender is not a loss, but actually a true aggrandizement of personality. Surrender simply means you let me take charge of yourself. I'll take care. Your intellect is not able to show you. Doesn't matter. You offer your mind to me and I'll fill your mind with that all revealing knowledge. You're not able to free yourself from these bonds. Trust me. Offer your will to me. Offer your little efforts to me. And I'll strengthen and fortify your heart and your will till you are able to break free from those very things which hold on to you like a chain. We'll end with this. He comes as the divine power and love which calls men to itself so that they may take refuge in that and no longer in the insufficiency of their human wills and the strife of their human fear, wrath and passion and liberated from all this unquiet and suffering may live in the calm and bliss of the divine. Anityam asukham lokam pajaswama. Yes, please. Uh, please be seated. Somebody, somebody told me that Sri uh, Arvindo wrote about how the terrorism ends in Savitri. Can you give me some light on that, please? Terrorism is the last part of falsehood, which is which is um, besieging human beings, and it will not. If the fact that now it has reached its peak, that means light is very, very nearby. Allow me five minutes and thank you for the question because I was just thinking I have not been able to read Savitri. You have fulfilled a wish. Thank you. Yes. So this is basically book 2, canto 8, where Ashupati is probing deeper and deeper into darkness, layer by layer, and he comes to that last bit where everything has been perverted, philosophy, religion, even the great truths have been perverted into their opposites. And 
uh, I'm not saying the page because I'm referring to the 54 edition previously and the pages won't match. So it's all right. It's but the last part in book 2, Canto 8. This was religion. This was nature's rule. Now this he's talking of now, what it has become. It's perverse. It's extreme perversity under the influence of this darkness. Not that all religion is bad. Religion is one of the four great doors towards spiritual life. Religion, occultism, spiritual experience and realization and spiritual philosophy. So it is in its origin. But under this influence, philosophy, religion, experience, everything is perverted. In a felt chapel of iniquity, to worship a black, pitiless image of power, kneeling, one must cross, hard-hearted, stony courts. I am not going to elaborate, but many of us would immediately identify what Shurabindu is referring. There are even physical places which actually is like this. Kneeling, one must cross hard-hearted stony courts, a pavement like a floor of evil fate. Each stone was a keen edge of ruthless force and glued with the chilled blood from tortured breasts. The dry, gnarled trees stood up like dying men, stiffened into a pose of agony. And from each window peered an ominous priest. So there are sacred priests and there are ominous priests. Chanting to dooms for slaughter's crowning grace. Wow, you have done a great work for God. Slaughtered so many. Cities uprooted. Blasted human homes. Burned ridden bodies. The bomb shells massacre. Our enemies are fallen, are fallen. They sang. All who once stayed our will are smitten and dead. How great are we. How merciful art thou. They use the name of God as the all merciful. And yet had no qualms about destroying innocent lives. There is a nobility in fighting the wicked and the vile. But there is no nobility in just uprooting homes and bombing all kinds of, you know, unsuspecting people. If you have to fight, fight one who is your equal, who can give you back in same terms. And there can be a joy of that, a divine movement. But this is a dark and ugly movement. And yet, every time they did it, they said, Lord, the all-merciful. Thus thought they to reach God's impassive throne. They thought this is the pathway to reach God. And him command whom all their acts opposed, magnifying their deeds to touch his skies and make him an accomplice of their crimes. There no relenting pity could have place, but ruthless strength and iron moods had sway. A dateless sovereignty of terror and gloom. This took the figure of a darkened God. They thought they are worshipping God. They thought that they are, you know, leading uh, through this kind of a suicide bombing. They are actually going to God's throne. But they were actually worshipping a dark, pitiless image of power which was not God but his shadow. Yet, 
let's end with hope when ashapati has gone through all this shurbindu had seen all this then he sees something very interesting in this darkness where darkness peers from her mattress gray and nude there in the slumber of the cosmic will it looks like god has gone off to sleep and things are running on auto there in the slumber of the cosmic will he saw the secret key of nature's change a light was with him an invisible hand was laid upon the error and the pain till it became a quivering ecstasy and then these last four lines to remember he saw in night the eternal's shadowy veil new death for a seller of the house of life in destruction felt creation's hasty pace and hell as a shortcut to heaven's gate new loss as the prize of a celestial gain and hell as a shortcut to heaven's gates divine is leading us to this shortcut hard and bumpy and rough road but because the darkness is densest as never before the light is closest than we can imagine